by any historical measure, we are in a unique presidential political race. And thinking of all that's going on, um, unrest, differences of opinion, race issues, these are trying times for sure. And these times and these issues have been trying Christians in the church. Many of you were here last week. We started a series out of Psalm 11 called What the Righteous Do. So I got your attention with this. So What the Righteous Do. And we really use Psalm 11 as a lens to say sometimes there's this sense of despair or hopelessness that in the language of Psalm 11, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Meaning give up, go home, go away. There's nothing left to do. We said, no, David showed that that's not the case. He had a different perspective. And even if the foundations that were the norm for this culture historically are gone, Christians still have an adequate foundation from which to speak peace, joy, life, the gospel essentially, to the culture around us. We talked about those in this venue. We said personal conversion. Sometimes we go to church and we think, that makes me a Christian, I'm a good person. We say, no, that doesn't. We repent of our rebellion, our isolation from God. We embrace the Gospel. Jesus' death for us, His resurrection for us. That's so that we can become righteous in God's eyes. Then we can start being about the business of righteous deeds. If we're not there, there's nothing that follows. Having done that, we pray. Guys, remember we talked about If we're not praying as Christians, we're proud and we're dull. We're both. God calls us to prayer relationally, but also it's His primary way in which He starts working in us and through us. It's through prayer. We also talked about the encouragement of the Scriptures. Guys, if we're getting most of our information, the the fodder for our own thought life from social media, from the media generally, from the newspapers, and not the Word of God, we're going to be discouraged. We're going to lose appropriate perspective. We've got to receive constantly, day by day, the encouragement of the Scriptures. And we need the encouragement of the fellowship of the saints. You've got to have all of that. That's an adequate foundation from which to continue to engage in this culture. Then we're ready to engage the culture socially and politically and ultimately be witnesses to Jesus Christ and the hope of the Gospel we have and all the ways that affects life around us. So with that as a backdrop or as a reminder of where we've started. And by way of almost apology, some of you were excited by last week's message. And it's like, okay, what are we going to hear this week about politics? I'm talking about politics today through the back door, not the front. And it's because my primary concerns are not ultimately the political realm. They're actually what's going on in the church. So we'll go through the back door to talk about the implications for the church and politics, then we'll end up talking about some of the social and political issues as well. So the first, and this has been stated a couple times this morning, is that God is firmly in control. Guys, God is firmly in control. There's no ambiguity in the Scriptures about this. Ephesians 1.11, we quoted last week, God is working His purpose and His counsel in everything that's going on on the earth around us. As crazy and chaotic, as upside-down, topsy-turvy as our world is becoming, God is still firmly in control. And even in painful situations, God is, is accomplishing His redemptive purposes for the church. Whether we can see that in the moment or not, God is in control. Job 42.2, Job said, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's still true today. 
Acts 17.26 says that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. God determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God is firmly in control in our time, in our place, in this nation, in our country. That's the first thing. If we don't get this, our tendency is to resort to our carnal nature, despair, angerness, confusion, bitterness, and that's not where we want to live. And that's not what, how we want to interact with the world around us. The second thing, and it's a sub-point to that first, it's this. Thinking of presidential politics now, for us. God appoints rulers. In the United States of America, in a democratic republic, God appoints rulers. You see this in Daniel. It's one of the key elements in the Old Testament. It's a great, great passage Uh, You know, Daniel's a prophet. He's a Jew living in exile in Babylon. He's serving the most powerful man on earth, King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of kings. And Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he sees this glorious statue, head of gold, silver chest, bronze midsection and legs, iron legs, clay and iron toes. And he's wondering, what does this mean? And Daniel says there's a God in heaven, and he reveals dreams. And he gave you that dream, and this is what it's all about. God has determined that there are four major empires that are going to come on this earth. And you're the head of gold. That's what's going on. Listen to what he said. This is in Daniel chapter 3. You, O king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of men, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you ruler over them all, you are the head of gold. From Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, he's the son of a king, he's a mighty warrior, and he's a king because of his own hand. And God says, no, you're king because I appointed you king. You're king because you serve my purposes and my plan. Now later, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. This one's of a mighty spreading tree. The birds of the air flock into it and it shades the earth. And then while he's watching, the tree gets chopped down. And he's trying to make sense, what does this dream mean? And so Daniel comes to him again and tells him, wow, I wish this dream was for someone else, but it's for you, and it's a warning from God. This is Daniel 4, verse 17. According to the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and He gives it to whom He will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. Now the warning was this, King Nebuchadnezzar, you're proud and you think, that the glory of Babylon is your doing. And God says, no, you're wrong. It's my doing. And that if you don't show obeisance to me, that you acknowledge that God is king over the king of kings on earth, I'm going to humiliate you. I'm going to humble you. I'm going to give you the mind of a beast for seven seasons. You're going to lose your mind. This is William Blake's portrayal of what Nebuchadnezzar might have looked like. Long hair, fingernails, nails grown out. You're not going to you're going to lose your rationality because God wants you to know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Guys, this statement is re- repeated. It's it's in Daniel in three chapters five times the same thing. I start getting the feeling that God rules the kingdoms of the earth and he appoints over those nations those whom he wants as rulers. That's the bottom line. As we face presidential elections, and we say, man, which, which one? We, we, we're troubled in both directions. We can bring to bear this sense of peace that God has said ultimately He's responsible for who's leading. You see this again for a Jew. 
This would have been irritating, by the way. Maybe like Christians are irritated by the politics of our day. Put yourself in a Jew's position, and God says that the king he's appointed isn't from the line of David. He's a Gentile pagan power in another land, and God says, that's my man. It gets worse in Isaiah and Second Chronicles when he's talking about the great King Cyrus of Persia. Listen to this from Isaiah 44 and 45. Thus says the Lord your God, who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill my purpose. Now first, Isaiah is writing 200 to 250 years before Cyrus comes on the scene. He's already called a Gentile king by name. And he's called him my shepherd. It was the Jewish kings who were shepherd kings of God's people. And he's calling a pagan king his shepherd. It gets worse in chapter 45. Thus says the Lord to His anointed to Cyrus. Guys, anointed is a key term there. My Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one. He calls Cyrus a Messiah. A messianic figure. Not the Messiah. A Messiah. An anointed one. Whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before Him. I will give you, He says to Cyrus, the treasures of darkness, the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by name for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. I call you by your name. I name you, though you don't know me. He's not a Jew. He's not part of the covenant. I equip you, though you don't know me, that the people may know from the rising of the sun from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. God is addressing pagans as anointed chosen servant shepherd kings you know when we're looking at presidential politics or gubernatorial typically that key leader we're saying usually in our minds are we not that we're looking for that christian leader that leader should be a christian because if they're not a christian god won't bless and i'm saying well historically that's not always true god has chosen pagan kings to bless his people if you notice the language there in isaiah 45 this is for the sake of jacob of god's covenant people God doesn't have to have a Christian in the White House to bless the United States. The person sitting in that chair will ultimately be the person of His choosing. Now this is affirmed again by Jesus in John 19, 11. Sorry, I'm behind. So the King of Kings... Am I on the right one? King of Kings? Oh man, I'm off guys. Where did I get? I may need help, sorry. Tell me if I'm good. Jesus? And Pilate? No? What have I got? That was rich. (laughs) Okay. You can't make this up. Let's see from the beginning. Am I good? You want to play with that? I want to get there. Yeah, so anyway, John 19, 11. So you remember when Jesus stands before the power of His day, at least geographically in that area, Palestine, Jesus stands before the Roman governor Pilate, and Pilate says, you better talk to me. I have the power to crucify you or to release you. And Jesus' response is, the only power, the only authority you have is what has been given to you from on high. Now Jesus is the power above all powers. He says, The power Pilate used to condemn him was borrowed, was given by God, by God himself. Now, we're in a democratic republic. We'll talk about this again near the end of our time. 
And from our vantage point, we are choosing our next president or governor or senator or congressman or mayor or city council member. And that's true. We are. And yet somehow, and the meeting point of these two is not clear, guys. The meeting point of God's sovereign plans being fulfilled through the electoral is not clear. How does all that come together? But that's what's going on. And so we can participate in the electoral process with confidence. We want to give due diligence. We want to show up if we can after second service and get great information for the primary. Um, but we want, to, we want to give due diligence and we want to vote, but we do so with the confidence that even if the person I didn't vote for is in office, God's rule continues. God's plans continue. We get to be part of the process. Lydia said about Topeka Friendship Network. That's what we're doing here too. The Democratic Republic institution we're a part of, yes, and the sovereignty of God and how they're working together, we don't get all that. We don't sit at home and say God sovereignly rule. We're part of the process. But the person elected president, we're talking about presidential politics primarily because that's where most of the smoke, the mirrors, the heat, the light is coming from, uh, will be God's, God's own. This was such a great PowerPoint too. <laughs> it doesn't matter which button I use. Okay. Right and left. Which is my left? Which is my right? Um, so so we, we rest in this confidence that at the end of the day, the next president, the next governor, the next representatives, whatever those positions of authority will be, will be those that God has appointed. And guys, sometimes God appoints leaders to bless. And sometimes He appoints leaders to judge. And we don't always know which way that's going. But God will remain sovereignly in control no matter who sits next in the White House. Now, along that same level, we are called to show respect. So God appoints the authorities. Guys, that means, biblically, you know, this is basic, right? For most of us, we've heard this. But this frames the dynamics that should be going on in the church of Jesus Christ related to the politics of the day. And it's often not. So that's why we're coming in from the back door here. We are called to show respect to those in authority and to submit to the laws of the land. Romans 13 let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Same thing. When we submit to authorities on earth, we are ultimately submitting to God who gave the authority. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Verse 7, pay to all what's owed them. Taxes to whom taxes, revenue to whom revenue, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. That's our call. Under God's authority, under the authorities of the land, that's our call. Listen to 1 Peter 2.13. Same thought. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, we would insert president, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now the reason these words have such import for me is because these were written under the context of a hostile Roman government over the early church. And guys, the government Paul and Peter called the church to submit to executed Paul and Peter. These are pretty, these are pretty basic foundational startling words when we understand their context. 
It's a pretty basic call to submit to the authorities God has placed over us. We're also called to civil disobedience. Josh, I think we're going to be out. That didn't work for me. Ah, okay. I may give up on this, by the way. We are called to civil disobedience. So on one hand, we say black and white, almost always, Christians are called to submit to the laws of the land and the authorities in the land. There's an exception. It's very clear in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4 and 5. And this is the bottom line. The Jewish leadership told the apostles, you must not preach and proclaim in Jesus' name. And in Acts 5, Peter said, we must obey God rather than men. And this is where the bottom line goes. When the church is called to do what God forbids or forbidden to do what God commands, then there's not a question to mull through here. We are called to civil disobedience. That's already settled. We need to be clear that that civil disobedience is required, but that's already set in stone. The early church has lived that out. Also, we are heaven's ambassadors. And this is a big deal for us. This is where part of the emotion, I think, comes in. Guys, remember that ultimately we are just on loan here in the United States of America. We are not first, as Christians, Americans. We are citizens, Paul says in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. You know, for you and I today to be citizens of the United States, guys, it's a privilege. We have so much materially. We have such a great heritage. It's a privilege. That is nothing compared to the privilege of Roman citizenship when Paul wrote those words. A Roman citizen had bragging rights, no taxes, all kinds of perks as a Roman citizen. Paul says, nope, my Roman citizen, it's citizenship, it's important, and I use it strategically, but I'm first and foremost a citizen of heaven. And this is why we've got to remember social media, verbal interaction, our thought life, what we're telling ourselves about others, we've got to remember that we first represent heaven, not the United States, not a political party, we first speak, first and last, we are citizens of heaven. We need to bring that to bear. Matthew 28, we're still under the Great Commission that as far as the world goes, our primary duty is to represent Christ to the world, not a political party, not a candidate. We want to make sure that we're clear on that. Uh, the next point on our political plank, see if I'm getting here. Guys, I am totally messed up on this thing. Where am I at? I may just can this. Um, all politics are local, right? All politics are local. You'll hear that. And by that, we mean politics begins at home. Politics are morality as public policy. When people say you don't legislate morality, you say, of course you legislate morality. Any legislation is morality. When we say something's right or wrong, that's moral. When we say something's better or worse for the, for the impact it has on other people, that's a moral judgment. All politics are morality as public policy. And this is why I bring this up. The church should be slow to lecture others about morality that we ourselves are not living out. We should be humble. We should be respectful. God's judgment begins in His own house. That's with us. Before we call the houses of political parties and candidates to order, we should make sure that our own house is in order. We should not be hypocritical. And I think to a significant degree, the church of Jesus Christ in the West has been hypocritical. We want it both ways. We want to do whatever we want, 
but we want to hold public figures and politicians to a standard we ourselves do not bear. It's hypocritical. The church, politics begins at home, it's local, and by that I mean it starts in the church. So if we're going to be salt and light, we need to be salty and we need to be full of light. So the question becomes, are we? To that, maybe I will try. To that, uh, Larry Stewart gave a great teaching a couple of weeks ago on the use of the words. And guys, word, words, when the Bible talks about words, generally there it would have been verbal in the time and the place. But for us, it's verbal, it's written, it's online, it's in books. Those are all words. Are we careful with the use of our words? Are we, are we building up? Are we tearing down? I love that Larry ended his teaching, his message on Titus 3, verses 1 and 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling. We could just cut out about 90% of social media right now. To be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. To show perfect courtesy to all people. You know, every one of us here uh, has a belly button. Surprise, right? You know what everyone here also has? We have opinions. And oftentimes our opinions are uncritical and they're unbiblical. Have you ever, ever had a conversation like this? You've read a book, let's say. It's a specific body of information. And you're discussing that book with someone else who read that book. They have the same background, the same history, the same information. You're discussing it. And an interloper comes in and they say something like this. You know, I haven't read that book, but this is what I think. I don't know what I'm saying. I don't know who I'm saying it to or what the context is, but this is what I think. Uh, all of us have our version of political hot air. So, so are we being slow to speak? Are we being quick to hear? Is that the kind of methodology with our words that we're bringing to bear? Or are we like politicians just spouting our own version of hot air? Self-serving. We feel good in the moment, don't we? You know, if you vent, don't you feel, oh, that felt so good. I vented. I was angry. I was whatever opinion. I vented. Doesn't that feel good? But what does it accomplish? What's it accomplishing? Are we mindful of our words? Also, back to the church and my primary concern with the politics of the day is we are all on the same side. If you're a Christian, you're on the same side with me and with every, every other Christian who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus, who's a baptized believer in the church of Jesus Christ, and by that I mean baptized by the Holy Spirit, we are on the same side. Because politics is morality, as public policy, it covers emotionally laden topics. And the best way to address a sensitive issue is not always obvious, especially in the time and the place we live today where the culture is so badly, so notably fractured. So the best option for a policy or a candidate, friends, may not be obvious to all of us or may not be equally obvious. Or we may, in fact, end up being sharply disagreeing over. Did you know pro-lifers in the Christian community all want the same thing, right? You want to value the life of the unborn. And we want to protect, and that's an appropriate and a right and a godly goal, protect the lives of the unborn. We don't want them to be killed while still in the womb. as public policy. But do you know there are pro-life groups that won't work with other pro-life groups? Absolutely. Absolutely. And do you know why? 
because their methodology differs. Not their goals, not what they're after. The way they would get there. And they say, your policy isn't pure enough for us. It's, it's our way or it's the highway, so we don't work together. And you say, wow, I thought we were all on the same team. I thought we all wanted the same goal. We do, but we divide on what I would call secondary issues. We say, no, we're not on the same team anymore because of a secondary issue, in this case, a methodology. I wrote a blog not long ago. Uh, I was seeing so much stuff on social media against Donald Trump, and so I just wrote one, and I said, if I vote for Donald Trump, can you and I still be friends? And I was just, this was the stuff that was, this is probably, I don't know, a couple months ago. Well, one, a friend and a brother said, hey, you didn't mention voting for Hillary Clinton. And I said, well, nothing that I'm reading is talking about voting for Hillary Clinton by the, these Christians. Well, then lo and behold, uh, a solid Christian brother who happens to be black, speaks at Gospel Coalition events, is on their website. There's a website you can read his stuff. By the way, there's resources on the end of your study sheet. I don't agree with everything that's said, but it's, it's views that you can read, broaden our thinking on all of these. But Thabiti said, very publicly, he said, I'm voting for Hillary Clinton, and I'm encouraging all other Christians to vote for her too. This was his rationale. This was the methodology. He said, I don't think either presidential candidate is really going to affect any notable change in the pro-life or the abortion arena. I think it's a wash either way. And so he said, so I'm digressing, if you will, to my other chief concern in this day, which is race relations in the United States. Well, that's an, an issue today, isn't it? And so he said he thought Donald Trump would prove a match to the forest fire waiting to ignite on race relations. Guys, this is a good Christian brother that I respect, that I've listened to in person, that I've read. He is still my brother in Christ whether I agree with his assessment of this or not. There's, there's rational reasons why he's looking at it from a different vantage point than most people I've talked to. One of the nods uh, for the possibility of voting for Donald Trump for president is that Donald Trump might, and that's a key word, might, it's a qualifier, might uh, appoint conservative justices to the Supreme Court. And for the court affects so many things, right? So many policies, so many lives. That's a big deal. But then you stand back and you say, guys, the permutations on this, they're beyond finding out ahead of time. So you know, when uh, what's called Obamacare was coming down the pike, and we've got a conservative president installed a conservative chief justice, we're good to go. And I'm driving down I-70 when they say Chief Justice John Roberts writes the, the uh, supporting... Uh, Positive opinion for Obamacare. I, I was in shock and disbelief. I told Kathy, something has happened. Somebody got to that guy. Guys, conservative chief justices usually go liberal the longer they're on. You can't count on this. All of which is to say, there's reasons why Christians who are in the same household of faith disagree on the best methodology towards the same goals. So we want to cut each other grace in this whole arena where we're trying to pray about, think about, act on in the legislative process. Differing methodologies towards the same goals. This is a tough, it's a prickly field. We should be treating these issues as Paul recommended 
in Romans 14, the issue there was eating meat. Do you eat meat? Do you not eat meat? And there were reasons on both sides. And Paul says this, let not Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains from eating that meat. That's a strong word. Despise. I look down my nose at you because you don't get it. He says also, let not the one who doesn't eat pass judgment on the one who eats. You're wrong. God, God needs to talk to you because you voted for the wrong candidate. You didn't get it right. We need to bring this kind of thoughtfulness because Paul says ultimately that brother or sister in Christ stands before God because God makes them stand. They are not ultimately accountable to you to answer your, your arguments with them. They stand before God because they're God's. They're not your servant, they are God's servants. Brothers and sisters in faith are not our enemies if they vote for someone we oppose. Guys, Christians are called to divide on some issues, doctrinal and moral issues. And you see this in the Scriptures, 1 Corinthians 5, the doctrinal issues, 1 John, other areas. We must divide on some issues, but we should not be dividing on secondary issues. And guys, almost all of politics, almost all, is secondary issues. The church of Jesus Christ should not be dividing over. Listen to this from Ephesians 4. Uh, Paul's given all the theology in Ephesians 1 through 3. He gets to chapter 4. He's going to start applying it. By the way, I just remind you, my words this morning are mine and not necessarily the view of this church or the rest of the elders. I thought I saw a bead of sweat on Kent's forehead, so I just want to let him off the hook. So in Ephesians 4, starting application, Paul says this walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Then he goes with these seven unity factors. He says there's one body, there's one church, there's one body, there's one Spirit that connects the members of the church. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. Our hope is ultimately in our union with Christ forever. There's one Lord, Jesus Christ. There's one faith, one body, one truth, one person that saves us, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That's the call to unity based on the perfection of these seven points of unity. Did you notice there's no mention of political party there uniting us? There's no mention there of one candidate to support. There's no mention there of one pro-life policy. Christians have, by virtue of what God has done for us, everything we need to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. And guys, this gets really prickly because politics are so emotional, we end up diverting, digressing. We put the secondary as the primary, and it's not. Politics almost always are secondary issues, not primary. So that's what we want to do. Now, I'm behind, guys, on all of these. Sorry. Um, we are resident aliens. It, it's, not, it's not A to A comparisons when we talk about Israel and Babylon or Egypt. But remember, the nation of Israel lived as resident aliens in Babylon. Some of us have already written off the United States. We're waiting for the judgment of God to fall. And guys, if God judged this nation severely today, He would be just. We've absolutely turned away from God in almost every imaginable way possible. If He did that 
he would be just. But let's just say that the Lord tarries for a while, that Jesus, the appearing of the Lord Jesus catches church up with himself. Let's just say that it doesn't happen for a while. Or let's say God extends mercy for another day or another year or another decade. What kind of world do we want for ourselves? For our kids? For our grandkids? For our neighbors that we love and care about? People that don't know Christ? People that do know Christ? We want the place to be as good as it can be, right? So we should continue to invest. If God chooses to judge, that's His deal. We don't control that. There's a call from Jeremiah to the resident aliens in Babylon in Jeremiah 29. And again, it's not quite an A to A perfect comparison, but I think the principle applies. And guys, the people there, they said, um, we belong in the land of promise, not here. We want to get back. But God had already said, nope, when I send you there, you're there 70 years. And they're kind of trying to diss the 70-year thing. And so God says through Jeremiah this, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Put your roots down. You're planting gardens. You're going to be there a while. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Give your wives to sons. Have children, have grandchildren. Multiply, don't decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your own welfare. That principle still applies. God, we, guys, we should still be praying for the nation and acting righteous deeds in the manners that are open to us with that same spirit. We want the country, the time and the place we live in to be as good as it can be for as many people as it can be. This is, this is brought up again in 1 Timothy 2, a passage we looked at not long ago. It's the same thing. Paul says the first priority for the church, pray. And when you pray, he says, pray for kings and those in authority that it may go well with you, that you may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness. This opens up the path for the gospel to still be proclaimed. It's the same thought. So even should God choose righteously to judge this nation tomorrow, I don't know that that's going to happen, so I'm going to continue to pray and act and engage in a way that I think will bless the place I live, the place my children live, the place my grandchildren live, the place my neighbors live, with the hope of the gospel and all of that. So pray first and then engage. Now having said that, uh, we don't want to be Pollyannish about this, right? This, our status is desperate morally and spiritually. We've been on a train going downhill without brakes for a long time. This nation has been turning us back on God specifically, systematically, repeatedly for a long time, for decades. So that turnaround, an abrupt turnaround is unlikely. Turnaround, friends, may be unlikely at this point. That's hard to say. That's in God's court, not ours. Whatever trajectory we're on, even if the ship of state is sinking, we should be loving our neighbors, bearing witness of the gospel, and being faithful adversaries and I'm using that term benevolently, faithful adversaries to the slide into depravity and the death depravity brings. Against the fruits of the long process, we would be naive to hope for a quick social, political, or cultural turnaround unless that was in the form of a great spiritual revival. God, guys could do, uh, God can do anything, right? If God wants a revival, it would start in the church, but God could pour out blessing and faith and conversion anytime he wants. That would bring about abrupt change. Short of something like that, abrupt change 
is highly unlikely if change comes at all. So how do we engage? This is to the political moments specifically. Voting and candidates. The first thing, Kent talked about this, and I hope you'll show up if you can at all uh, after second service for that informational meeting, is to get informed and vote. This is our part of the parallel universe, if you will, of God's sovereignty. It's, it's He's using people. We're engaged in this process. It's to be as informed as you can and vote. Have you guys ever gone into the voting booth and realized, I don't know any of these judges. I don't know the referenda. I don't know the candidates. It's a terrible feeling because we want to be informed. We want to vote redemptively in the ways we can. So we want to be informed and we want to vote. So I hope the second meeting will work out for you. We want to support qualified candidates financially, door-to-door with them, yard signs. Consider being a candidate. You know, the, the political wins are driven this year by the presidential election. But guys, there are so many policies. There are so many things that are affected by local government, by county boards, by school boards, by city councils. A lot of the stuff that you and I are affected by is not set at a presidential level. It's set locally. So we don't want to overlook those. In fact, in our Senate race, in the part of town we live in, that the outcome in the general election will no doubt be determined August 2nd at the primary. The winner of the primary will almost certainly win the general election. The primary election will determine who the senator is in my district. And lots of people don't even bother to vote in the primaries. Um, so we want, we want to be informed and we want to vote. I want to see, I may have passed a note that I wanted to bring up to see if we could do this. This may, uh, I'm running out of time. I'm going to run a little short and I'll cut, cut a couple things short. But would you guys mind doing an experiment with me? It's just, it's an object lesson if it works. I've never done this and so it may just fall flat. First, if you're willing, and you don't have to, if you're willing and would like to show by a raise of your hand your political leanings in the moment, if you're willing to do that, would you raise your hand? And you don't have to. Okay, so about a third of us. Okay, so of that, that group, are you guys planning to vote in the elections that are coming up? Okay, so the same group about is voting. Okay, if you're willing to, how many, how many either never-Trumpers or leaning never-Trumpers are there in our midst? Okay, a couple. Okay, how many are leaning towards voting for Donald Trump for president? Okay, how many are leaning towards Hillary Clinton for president? Okay, um... Was there another question on this list? So, the object would be in this church group right here on Sunday morning, there are people who have different perspectives of how they're going to vote in the presidential election. And guys, here we are under one roof in the same service, worshiping the same God, and Lord willing, a little bit singing the same songs of Zion to the God we trust, and we're not all on the same page on this presidential politics stuff. This is good. Yeah, we're good. So what's going on in the larger culture, guys, it's going on right here. Do we love each other? I hope so. I hope you looked around to see who your opposition is, by the way. <laughs> whose, whose minds you need to change. Who you need to pray for, for spiritual enlightenment. Right, but that's real for lion and lamb church. That's us. We're not different. We're with the rest. Same, same boat, everybody else. Okay, the other place that we can uh, affect change or work at it is a boycotts, 
uh, if you're as old as I am, you, boycotts used to be semi-regular. And, and there's personal boycotts, there's corporate boycotts. Um, when Levi uh, Jean Company, probably two or three decades ago, said, we're pulling funding from the Boy Scouts because they won't approve homosexual leadership, we personally boycotted Levi's. We haven't bought a pair of Levi's since, probably in 30 years. That's a personal boycott. I wrote a letter to them. Did it affect their business? I'm sure, not, a, not much. Um, but that was personal. On the corporate level, what you're really hoping to do is say... There's so many of us that believe the same thing. We're going to withhold our business from you until you affect change in a policy. And the, the current one is Target. And I know some of in our own group are passionate about boycotting Target, and others don't even know Target was boycotted. Target says we're unaffected by the boycott. They've publicly said this. Other websites say, well, we've done some math. We've looked at their business revenue from before they stated their change. After they stated their change, we've compared them to their competitors, and we think they're down about $9 billion since they made the announcement. That's not what they're saying. Will this boycott effect change in Target? Don't know. Have no idea. Target is not the only store that does this, guys. Most of the big chains, they're all doing it. They just didn't make a big announcement like Target did. The, the downside, and this is where you want to be shrewd as serpents, the downside of boycotts is this. If they're unsuccessful, they simply point out the boycotting group's impotency. You have to be strategic, well-thought, well-organized to pull off a successful boycott. One of the things that I, am, I was really encouraged by just reading this last week in World Magazine Online, one person can still make a difference. And I love this. One voice can still make a difference. With all the social media, everything that's going on, one dedicated person can still affect change in a community. This is Allison Kelly. She's a yoga teacher, mother of four. I'm reading from World Magazine. Fort Worth Independent School District taxpayer. Spent much of this spring firing off emails to board members and district officials, hosting meetings in her home, organizing others to do the same via social media. She wasn't alone. Community members opposed to the controversial set of transgender student guidelines created Stand for Fort Worth, an organization with a Facebook group now boasting more than 3,500 members. One gal in her living room, writing emails, making phone calls, connecting with other people, doing the same thing. The school board now has backed off and said, gosh, we'll rethink this. We'll put a committee together. We don't know how the dust will settle. But one woman stood up and said, I want to do something. And she has. And at least for now, those, uh, those policies are on hold. So guys, among Christians, Christians should be those with the greatest sense of peace and confidence going forward in the political arena because we know ultimately God is in control. We should be the most gracious, respectful, and accurate in our speech. We've got to work at this. Everybody needs to work at gracious and accurate in our speech. We should be the most cohesive voting block. And by this, I don't mean that we're all voting for the same person. I mean that as a voting block, we're committed to each other, regardless of the fruits of an election. Christians should be the most consistent group praying for and investing in our own communities. Like Neighborhood Watch Night here, August 6th. Good idea. We should combine hard-headed expectations with hopeful prayer. Hard-headed expectations, not Pollyannish, with hopeful prayer. We should be consistent in our thoughtful engagement in the political process that bless or curse our neighbors and our families. And last... This is where we're going. In the United States, guys, we have a rich heritage, and we appreciate this. 
And boy, don't we love the democratic republic form of government that we inhabit. We love it, don't we? We sell it to the world as the best form of government, but you know biblically it's not. Biblically, a democratic republic is not the best form of government, is it? You know why it works. Because it recognizes that men are deficient and evil and wicked and give one person too much power and they will abuse it. So the founders knew we don't want a king, too much power in one person, so we're going to divide it up in the branches of government. It's based on the inherent fallenness of our nature. But guess what? If you took a perfect person who was benevolent and all-wise and all-knowing and you made that person king, they could affect the best, efficient blessing and government, couldn't they? God's economy on politics is a king. And He's chosen His King. And guys, for two millennia, the church of Jesus Christ has been praying, Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Paul closes 1 Corinthians 16 with Maranatha, which means, Lord Jesus, come. The Bible closes Revelation 22, 20 with Amen, come Lord Jesus. Guys, every one of those prayers is for a king to come and set up a kingdom, not a democratic republic. A king and a kingdom that never ends. And that's exactly what you got back in Daniel. When that image of the statue, those were the four empires of the earth. But do you remember what happens in the vision? A rock from heaven that no man had cut. It wasn't produced by humanity. A rock from heaven flies down out of heaven and it crushes the four empires before it and it becomes itself a kingdom that lasts forever. In Daniel 7... The empires of the world are compared to beasts. Like Nebuchadnezzar become, they're beasts. They're debased. They're beastly. And when they end, a son of man approaches the ancient of days on that throne, fiery throne in heaven, and receives a kingdom that never ends. Guys, ultimately, that's what we're looking for. We want to be faithful witnesses in the time and the place God has put us. Absolutely. But we look for a coming king and a coming kingdom. And that's where we need to tip our hat. Let's pray. Father God, thank You that You firmly have all things in control, that You are benevolent and good beyond asking. Lord Jesus, thanks that Your blood covers our sins. Father God, would You help us by Your Spirit by the encouragement we receive in each other, by the truth of Your Word, to be wise and gracious, respectful, obedient, servants of heaven here on earth in our day. In Jesus' name, Amen.